So if you would turn to Luke chapter 19, we're going to pick up our study through the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 19, and we will pick up with verse 28. Now this is, of course, a key point in Luke's Gospel, because we find Jesus coming into Jerusalem, finally. And it's connected with what we have previously seen by verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he was going. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, If these become silent, the stones will cry out. Back in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, Luke noted that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Ten chapters ago. At that time, Jesus was in Galilee, and so he was heading south toward Jerusalem. And since he could not pass through Samaria, he crossed east over the Jordan River into Perea, and then headed south until he was opposite Jericho, where he crossed west back over the Jordan and into Judea. Luke noted several times throughout his account of Jesus' journey that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. We've been hearing that over and over and over and over. And for ten chapters now, we've been following Jesus on his journey from the north to the south. Luke noted Jesus' ministry in Jericho, which is on the west side of the Jordan River and on the north side of the Dead Sea. And now... We're finally getting to the destination. One commentator gave a marvelous description of the final stage of the journey, this 17-mile stretch from Jericho to Jerusalem. He wrote this, mile after uphill mile, 
It seems a long way even today in a car. You wind up through the sandy hills from Jericho, the lowest point on the face of the earth, through the Judean desert, climbing all the way. Halfway up, you reach sea level. You've already climbed a long way from the Jordan Valley, and you still have to ascend a fair-sized mountain. It is almost always hot, since it seldom ever, if ever, rains. It's almost always dusty as well. That was the way the pilgrims came, with Jesus going on ahead as he had planned all along. This was to be the climax of his story, of his public career, of his vocation. He knew well enough what lay ahead and had to set his face to go and meet it head on. He couldn't stop announcing the kingdom. But that announcement could only come true if he now embodied in himself the things he'd been talking about. The living God was at work to heal and save, and the forces of evil and death were massed to oppose him, like Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt trying to prevent the Israelites from leaving. But this was to be the moment of God's new exodus, God's great Passover, and nothing could stop Jesus going ahead to celebrate it. Even when you drive rather than walk from Jericho to the top of the Mount of Olives, the sense of relief and excitement when you reach the summit is intense. At last you exchange barren, dusty desert for lush green growth, particularly at Passover time at the height of spring. At last you stop climbing. You crest the summit. And there before you, glistening in the sun, is the holy city, Jerusalem itself, on its own slightly smaller hill across a narrow but deep valley. Bethany and Bethpage nestled on the Jericho side of the Mount of Olives. Once you pass them, Jerusalem comes into view almost at once. The end of the journey the pilgrimage to end all pilgrimages, Passover time in the city of God. And that's what we're seeing here as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He is coming into his royal city, the city of David. He is coming to complete his ministry of seeking and saving the lost. He is coming to be that Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But before he gives his life a ransom for many, he enters the city as the king of kings. You know, we just were talking this morning in discipleship about the new creation and about New Jerusalem as the Bride of Christ, the Church. And we made the point that in several places in the book of Revelation, you have these situations where John in particular looks to see something, but when he looks to see, it's not what he expected to see. It's something else entirely. So we looked at John at Revelation chapter 5, for instance, in which John turns to look at what has been described as the lion who alone is capable of opening the scroll with the seven seals. 
But when he turns to look at what has been described as a lion, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb standing as if slain. Same person. Jesus is lamb and lion. Just as the new Jerusalem is described as a city, but it is actually the church. Here you have Jesus as king and as lamb. He enters into the city as the king of kings and he has given royal treatment. But he is a king who is coming to bleed and to die to be the sacrificial Passover lamb. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem shows us that Jesus is indeed that long-anticipated and coming king. The first thing we see as Jesus approaches Jerusalem is that his entrance was clearly and deliberately planned. You see that verses 28 through verse 24, Luke says that when Jesus said these things, that is, the previous parable, we've mentioned when we dealt with that parable that this is going to be the last one before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. He's had his last encounter with individuals, and he's had his last teaching opportunity to the crowds before he comes into the city. And so, when Jesus was done saying these things, when Jesus was done talking about this parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus traveled that 17-mile trip from Jericho to Jerusalem, probably took him and those accompanying him six hours or so in that heat and in that Dust, And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, or better known as the Mount of Olives perhaps, on the east side of Jerusalem, he sent two of his disciples out on an errand. He said, go into the village ahead of you, verse 30. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it. And bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say the Lord has need of it. And so they went. Jesus told them to go. He has something for them to do. Enter in. Find this colt. And they did. The disciples he sent went. They found the colt exactly where Jesus told them it would be. Because Jesus is in control of everything. Jesus is not subject to the events which are going to follow. Jesus is in control of those events. He is in control when those soldiers come to arrest him. He is in control when he stands before Pilate and Herod. He is in control as he is carrying his cross to Calvary. He's in control as Roman soldiers nail him to that cross. He is in control when he draws his last breath. Jesus is the sovereign 
Lord, and he controls everything, including this cult. Those who were sent, we're told, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? That must have been an interesting interaction. (laughs) Someone comes into your driveway and starts (laughs) taking your car away. You might have a question about that. And what's their response? They simply say the Lord has need of it. What Lord? Who's Lord? We're not told anything more than that. Now, it's certainly a possibility and most likely a probability that the person from whom they were taking the colt was a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of Christ. And these two come and say, well, Jesus needs your donkey. Well, okay, take it away. Somebody comes to you and tells you, Jesus needs your car. And you're sure that it is really Jesus giving you this message. You're going to say, here's the keys. Take it as long as you like. Just bring it back with a full tank. (laughs) The Lord has need of it. That's all they needed to say. Now, when we look at this, there are a number of things that I want you to see in this portion of our our passage this morning. And the first is what we've already mentioned. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is very deliberate. It's, It's very much planned. Every step is going to go according to the way Jesus has planned this. It is no sudden or impulsive action. Jesus didn't leave things to the last moment. He had apparently made prior arrangements with the owners of the cult. The Lord has need of it. This was just something that seemed to be a matter of course. So, you know, we don't really know the details of this. Either Jesus had made plans with the owner of the cult uh, before this, or the owner of the cult just somehow knew that this was legit. These guys had come from Jesus, and so go ahead and take it. But Jesus had planned everything, whether on a very human kind of natural, practical basis, or Somehow, supernaturally, Jesus had planned it. The second thing we see here in this passage, though, is that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is an act of what we might refer to as glorious defiance and great courage. By this time, there is a price on his head. Now, Luke doesn't mention that, but John does. And in John chapter 11 and verse 57, John says this, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Now, 
That's chapter 11 in John. In John chapter 13, you have the Lord's Supper. So right before Jesus is arrested, right before Jesus is coming into the city during this, the last week of his earthly life, there are those who are seeking to destroy him. Not really a surprise. It would have been natural that he must go into Jerusalem. It would have been natural that since he had to go into Jerusalem, he would have, uh, you know, he might have slipped in unseen, hidden away in some secret place in the, the back streets. Somebody's looking to take your head. Maybe you take some precautions. I'm thinking of Salman Rushdie this past week. He has had a fatwa on his head for 40 years. 40 years. After 40 years, you might think you can lighten up a little bit. Ease up on the security. Maybe I don't have to go around with my head on a swivel everywhere I go. Expecting the worst. And 40 years after the fatwa is decreed upon him, that's when someone comes to stab him in the throat. And we shouldn't really be surprised at that. Right? I mean, in the Muslim world, the Crusades are yesterday. Long memory there. Jesus had a price on his head. He took no precautions because he knew, one, he was in control and he knew what the end result was going to be. They were going to take him and they were going to crucify him. So he doesn't go in skulking around through the back streets. He doesn't put on a disguise. He enters in such a way as to focus the whole spotlight of Jerusalem upon himself and to occupy center stage. That's what Jesus does. It is very strange for us to consider this that a man with a price on his head, someone considered now to be an outlaw, deliberately rides into the city in such a way that everyone's attention is focused on him. Everyone's eye is focused on him. There is nothing being hidden. And the only reason he's not taken when he enters into Jerusalem is that there are crowds And humanly speaking, he's being protected by all the crowds that are there crying out, Hosanna. But he's going to Jerusalem for one final time to fulfill the mission assigned to him by the Father. The third thing that we need to see here is that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem 
was his deliberate claim to be king. It was a deliberate fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which states, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. We tend to think of kings riding on great, beautiful, white horses. And for many kings, that's true. That's why we think of it that way. But the donkey in Jesus' day was not the lowly beast that it is in our country, in our day. That's how we always think of it. Only in war did kings ride on a horse. When they came in peace, they came on a donkey. So Jesus, by this action, came as a king of love and peace, not as a military conqueror. That would have given entirely the wrong impression there is going to come a time when he comes on a horse. But that's for the future. Now he comes on the donkey. And so in this act of riding on a donkey's colt, Jesus underlines the kind of kingship which was his. Jesus is coming as the king of peace in order to save lost sinners. There will be another time when he comes for a different purpose. But here, 2,000 years ago, he is coming to save And then another thing that we see here is that his entrance into Jerusalem was really functioning as one final appeal. Jesus came and in this action was pleading, saying, even now, will you not take me as your king? Before the hatred of the Jewish leaders engulfed him, Once again, he confronts Jerusalem with this invitation of love. There was nothing unplanned about Jesus' triumphal entry. The main point to learn here is that Jesus is in complete control over every event that is about to take place. He knew what awaited him. He understood what the Father expected of him, and he carried out his Father's will down to the final detail. That ought to be a great comfort to us. I hope that when you consider the exhaustive, absolute sovereignty of God, I hope it is a comfort to you. Because it ought to be. Jesus is not a victim of circumstances beyond his control. He is in control. And you are not a victim of circumstances that, humanly speaking, seem to be out of your control. God is in control of your life. Every detail. And he has a purpose for everything that he brings into your life. And that purpose, brothers and sisters, is good. It is good. He works all things together for good. And as we said this morning, that is not a cliche. Don't just hear that and forget it. 
Don't just let that roll off your back. Everything that comes into your life, God is going to work together for good. For those who what? Who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's a glorious thing. That enables us to deal with all the difficulty that comes to our life. That enables us to withstand every storm that is going to blow. Because that's confidence in the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of our God. Well, I hope that's a comfort to you. He is still in control over every event, even today. And you can take that out of your own life personally, because that applies to everything else that's going on in the world. You look at what's happening in our country, you look at what's happening in the world, and you say, boy, this doesn't look good. (laughs) There is so much sin and wickedness, and there is so much suffering, and there is so much corruption. God's in control, even then. God has a plan and a purpose. He has a big picture, as we've been discussing. And he's bringing it all to its proper conclusion. There is nothing beyond his deliberate and purposeful plan. We, Paul says, Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works how many things after the counsel of his will? All things after the counsel of his will. Not some, all. So Jesus is in control of everything that's going on here. When you see this in verse 35 as well, is Jesus is affirming that sovereign kingship they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their coats on it and they put Jesus on it so having procured the colt Jesus begins to ride it and this is bringing us back to Zechariah chapter 9 we've mentioned that before I just want to flesh that out a little bit Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 states that Jerusalem's king would come humble and mounted on a donkey a colt the foal of a donkey and that prophecy explains why Jesus told his two disciples to go get that colt that had never been ridden Jesus needed the animal to serve as a prop in his drama of redemption Jesus' disciples brought the colt to him, put their cloaks on the colt, and set him on it. And as Jesus rode then from Bethpage to Bethany, down the Mount of Olives, which was directly opposite Jerusalem, he is affirming his sovereign kingship, and everyone who saw him knew it. They knew exactly what he was doing. They knew exactly what he was saying about himself. You'll remember that the angel Gabriel told Jesus' mother Mary, 
prior to his birth, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, Jesus' royalty is being put on display in full view as he rides down the Mount of Olives into the valley below and then up the hill into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is riding the donkey of Israel's kingship. And those who saw him knew their Bibles. And when they saw him, Zechariah 9.9 is what would have come to mind. They immediately would have recognized Jesus riding on the colt as an affirmation, a claim of his sovereign kingship. And we know that they made this connection because of what they shouted in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When the people saw Jesus riding the colt, they knew that this was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy and that Jesus was affirming his sovereign kingship. Of course, what they did not understand was the nature of his kingship. That part, they always got confused. Because when they think of a king, as we do, we think of a political ruler. We think of someone who comes at the head of armies. And that's not what Jesus had come to do. The cult should have given them a clue. But they missed that, it seems. Jesus was not making a political statement. Jesus was making a spiritual statement. Jesus had not come to overthrow the Roman occupation through military might. Instead, he had come in humility to be the savior of his people. He was coming to Jerusalem Not to rule and reign, but to die. He was offering himself as the sin bearer. So that sinners might be reconciled to his father in heaven. One commentator said, if people accepted him, he would receive their praise. But if they rejected him, he would do nothing to defend himself, even to the very point of death. That is not the behavior of your typical earthly king. Earthly kings kill people who are a threat to them. Jesus knew who the threats were, and he did nothing to defend himself. And Jesus rides the same way into our lives today. He comes in humility to be our savior Humility is said to be the personal quality of being free from arrogance and pride and having an accurate estimate of one's worth. So even if one possesses, in human terms, qualities of greatness, even if one is in one respect or another, superior to everyone else. Humility recognizes that and doesn't need to prove it. 
And so there is no arrogance. There is no pride. That's what you see in Jesus. In control of every detail. All the power of God at his disposal. And he doesn't have to prove anything. He's come for a purpose. He's going to fulfill that purpose. He's thinking of and serving others in that humility. He doesn't come down with crushing power, although he will when he comes again. He still comes now to seek and save the lost through the gospel. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's humility. Humility being exhibited in one who could destroy the universe in a split second. And a split second would be a long time. So if Jesus is the king of humility, then we who know him and love him ought to exhibit that same characteristic, ought we not? Thomas Mikomiski said that Jesus did not ride into the city on great beautiful horses, but on a colt. Because the donkey stands out as a deliberate rejection of the symbol of arrogant trust in human might, expressing subservience to the sovereignty of God. Jerusalem's king is of humble mien, yet victorious. And so it has always been that the church does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its king and Savior. Remember what the Psalms say over and over again? I'm not going to trust in horses or chariots. I'm going to trust in the Lord. That's what Jesus is exhibiting here. And that's what the church ought to exhibit. Particularly in our proclamation of the gospel. When our evangelists go out on the street, they don't bring weapons with them. There are no threats because we understand that no one has ever been threatened into the kingdom. Anyone who has ever entered into the kingdom has come because the Lord God has been gracious and merciful and has changed that person's heart through the instrumentality of the gospel. That's it. Go back to you know, the Middle Ages you will never find anyone who has been converted by the sword. You will never find anyone who has been converted because their king decided that it was politically expedient to to convert. And then all of his people did the same thing because that's what the king does and that's what you do. Those are not conversions. Now, perhaps God was gracious and converted individuals in that process. But most of the time, it was all 
for political purposes or for personal safety because you don't want to go against your king or it was because you thought you could get something out of it. All those are great stories, right? This happened in, in China. It happened you know, back when the Vikings were being converted. When the gospel came into the Viking lands and they started as a mass of people, right? Everyone started to come to Christ because, as we say, you know, the king does, everybody else follows. Whenever someone was baptized, they would get this brand new white shirt to be baptized in. And, you know, shirts were not cheap. They didn't, you didn't, you know, go down to Marshalls or something and, and buy one. So people wanted these things, and people would just come back get baptized over and over and over because you you could fill up your wardrobe with nice new shirts from your baptisms. No one's ever been saved that way. We are saved by the grace of God. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. We are saved by the power of the gospel. Jesus, rather than riding in to set everyone straight, comes riding on a donkey in gentleness and in peace. And that is how we proclaim the gospel, brothers and sisters. Because God doesn't need us to manipulate people. And God doesn't need us to threaten people. God works through the power of the gospel preached. If you are in Christ, that's how you were saved. That's how I was saved. Finally, you see in verses 36 through 40, Jesus receiving the rightful praise that he is due. Luke said that as Jesus rode along, the people of Jerusalem were spreading their cloaks along the road. You see that in verse 36. The other Gospels tell us that the people were also spreading palm branches along the road. And this was the ancient manner in which a king was welcomed into a city. This was not something unique. But again, people recognized the claim that Jesus was making by riding on that donkey. And this was a way of saying that Jesus was too worthy to ride on an ordinary road. He deserved a carpet. This kind of morphed into the red carpet kind of deal that we know of. So when the people threw down their cloaks, they were saying, King Jesus, you are so much greater than I am. You are much more worthy of honor than I am that when your donkey walks over my clothes, it is not an insult to me, it is an honor to me. Is it an honor to you to be spat upon for the cause of Christ? Is it an honor to you to be insulted for the cause of Christ? Is it an honor to you to sacrifice and to suffer for Christ? The crowds quickly began to swell. Jesus was was drawing near Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice 
for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they cry out, as we have read, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These are words coming from Psalm 118. There's a study Bible that notes that Psalm 118 describes a festive procession into Jerusalem after some great deliverance. The original occasion, it says, is hard to identify. It could be the rebuilding of the temple or the walls of Jerusalem. In later time, it was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles as well as Passover. Psalm 118 is a psalm about the coming Messiah. And so the crowds gave Jesus his rightful praise as the coming Messiah, as the king, which they understood the Messiah would be king. And they were connecting all of this now. The king, the Messiah, the miracles that Jesus had done, it's all coming together. Now, true to form... The Pharisees weren't getting with the program. And so some Pharisees that were in the crowd began to try to rebuke Jesus, telling him that he ought to be rebuking his disciples. Now again, when we talk about disciples in the Gospels, you've got to figure out who's being spoken of. This is not the twelve. This is a very much larger group. Similar to what you see in John chapter 6, when there are thousands of people who are referred to as Jesus' disciples, who then, after Jesus teaches some hard things, leave him. So don't pour too much into this term disciple. Could very well be that a lot of these were pretty fickle. A week from now, the crowds are going to be yelling, crucify him. But right now, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees don't like this at all and tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. They knew that the crowd was affirming Jesus' sovereign kingship and they wanted Jesus to shut them up. But Jesus answers, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now there's a remarkable statement. Jesus, the one who created the sun and the moon and the stars, the one who created innumerable galaxies, the one who created even the tiniest molecule, will be worshipped by his creation if his people won't do it. The Bible says that creation waits with eager longing for the day of salvation. It's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. As he's looking to that final day when Jesus comes and says, this whole creation which has been affected so by the fall, it's eagerly waiting, it's groaning. It wants to see the redemption of the children of God. Because when the children of God meet their full redemption, that is when the new creation will be created as well. It is then that the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And Jesus indicates in his response to the Pharisees that all of creation is almost bursting with eager anticipation to to, to praise its creator. You shut up these people, the stones will cry out. 
Jesus created you for a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify him. This is what he says through Isaiah the prophet. All peoples everywhere were created to glorify God. And if we do not do that, if we reject what God has offered us through Jesus Christ, if we reject that sacrifice which has been made for us, if we keep our mouths closed in terms of giving praise unto God, we are not fulfilling the purpose for which we exist. And there will be judgment. There is no higher privilege than to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all that he has done in Christ. So having analyzed Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, obviously, the main application here is what? Worship Jesus as king. He is worthy. But let me just leave you, once again, with the things that we have seen in this passage. Jesus is sovereign. He is sovereign in every detail, even of his own sacrificial death. And if you want to see that laid out explicitly in Scripture, just go and read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. And read the church's prayer in Acts chapter 4. And nothing could be more clear. Second thing we've seen is that Jesus affirmed his sovereign kingship by riding the colt of a donkey into Jerusalem. He came in great humility to save his people. And he now calls his people to live and to serve him with that same humility. And finally, Jesus rightfully received the praise of the people when he rode into Jerusalem. In just a few days, the crowds would turn against him and have him crucified. He voluntarily went to the cross and died to pay the penalty for our sin. Now, he deserves our praise for what he has done. Even as he deserved praise then for what he was about to do. This passage shows us the greatness of our Savior. Once we have turned to him in faith and repentance, then our task is to show everyone around us that greatness. Joseph Bailey put it this way, King Jesus, why did you choose a lowly ass to carry you to ride in your parade? Had you no friend who owned a horse, a royal mount with a spirit for a king to ride? Why choose an ass, small, unassuming beast of burden, trained to plow, not carry kings? King Jesus, why did you choose me? A lowly, unimportant person to bear you in my world today. I'm poor and unimportant, trained to work, not carry kings, let alone the king of kings, and yet you've chosen me to carry you in triumph in this world's parade. King Jesus, keep me small so that all may see how great you are. Keep me humble so all may say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not what a great ass he rides. May God help each one of us to live in a way which shows the greatness of Jesus, our King and our King. 
Savior. Father, make it so. Make it so, Father. May we be made little of so that Jesus may be made much of. For his sake and in his name we ask it. Amen. Would you take your hymnals and turn with me to hymn 229 as we sing of the deep, deep love of Jesus. Joanne.